David, Stephen, come around and take that um, microphone. It's not the first time that you two have done this. When did the two of you become a double act, a Morkham and Wise type thing? <laughs> I think uh, sometime on some seaside in Morkham, in something of that kind. I think you and I did a double act, did we not, David, for the first time? No, seriously, I don't remember. It went back quite a few years, yes. How about that for a lame, dull answer? What, 10, 15 years first? Okay, okay. And that accent, Stephen, it's not from these parts. Tell us a little bit about where you're from. Wales. And you came here to a job in Union College. Can I ask you what drew you to that particular place here in Belfast at that time and to keep you here for the time you have been? Well, I, I didn't come directly from Wales, actually. I was in England for three years uh, after teaching in Wales, and then I came over here. What drew me here? I was interested, really, in teaching theology in a context which I thought would be a very challenging one, because when I came over, actually, the IRA had not declared the ceasefire. The ceasefire was declared in 1994, uh, so when I accepted the appointment here, it was still the time of the Troubles. And I thought it would be an interesting context in which to try to contribute to theological teaching. I've had contacts with Northern Ireland since childhood, actually. I used to come over with the family as a child uh, every summer. My father would take a pulpit somewhere in Belfast. Uh, and so I had those connections. I was external examiner here in the late 80s, early 90s. So there's been that factor, the Northern Ireland factor in my life, since I was actually six or seven years old. So it didn't feel like an entirely strange land. David, you did this series, as I say, I think it was probably around 2006, um, the McGee lectures that Desi Alexander actually put on. Um, how did you, the two of you, um, put together who you would speak about when you start to think about modern thinkers? Well, I think in some ways the people we've chosen are people we've been interested in, uh, both of us one way or another, for a fairly long period of, of time. As you said earlier, Steve, we had um, some differences uh, from exactly what we're doing. I think we concentrated perhaps a little more in, exclusively in the 20th century last time. But uh, on this occasion, we're dipping back a bit more into the 19th century because some of the figures that we're talking about continue to have such a resonance. I mean, not least the one we're talking about tonight, Charles Darwin, is an enormous resonance in the 20th and 21st century. Um, so um, uh, I've been interested in the two or three figures that I'm going to talk about. I've been interested in them for a long time, and I think um, Stephen as well. So it's, it's not to say that these are the key six thinkers or anything of that sort. Uh, um, there might have been better ones we could have chosen. Uh, there, may, there certainly would have been alternatives. But in some profound way, all of these six figures have really shaped the modern world in uh, hugely significant ways. And I, I think it's just the happenstance of our own interest, perhaps, that uh, you're getting the diet on the menu that we're, we're having over the next six weeks. Well, you are doing Darwin that you've been speaking about, you were saying, for the last couple of weeks, really. Um, Aye, that's right. <laughs> so you're, uh, and you're also, you changed to Edward Said that you did with us uh, a while back. Why... Is he particular in this series this time? Well, uh, I didn't do, we didn't do Darwin last time, I think, when we, when we did this. So this is really an attempt to um, 
bring that story up to date. I, I had looked at a, a philosopher of science last time, uh, Thomas Kuhn, but um, it struck me again that uh, the Middle East is still such um, a volatile and critical area in um, contemporary world history that seeing, rethinking our uh, images of Islam and our images of the so-called Orient um, still continues to be so important, not least in a congregation like ours where we've had many people visiting the Middle East and um, working and living there for, for a while, that it, it, it struck me that revisiting um, Edward Said would be a, a useful thing, not least for Fitzroy. Stephen, two of those that you're speaking about, um, Nietzsche and Bonhoeffer, I'm aware that you've had an interest in for some time. What drew you to those people in general? How did you begin to think those are two thinkers I want to spend some time in? Well, of course, the reason uh, I'm doing Nietzsche in this series is because of his uh, huge impact on the 20th century and third millennium. And violently anti-Christian, massively influential. I was drawn to him first because I was actually trying to write something on radical contemporary theologians and was tracing back the work particularly of Don Cupid. Some of you may have come across Don Cupid. Uh, I was trying to, to see what lay behind his thought and Nietzsche was one prominent figure. So that got me into Nietzsche and I thought that it would be good to spend time on him. Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer is someone I've long admired immensely, and I know many of you here are likely to have not only heard of him, but know a bit about him. And I think he's perennially relevant. He teaches me a lot uh, all the time. And he's one of those voices, I think, that can speak into so many different situations, not only in his own time, but uh, in our time as well, and in different parts of the world. So I'm hoping that uh, you'll be persuaded to his worth while spending time with him if you hang on as long as that. And it all depends on David whether you hang on as long as that. <laughs> the pressure. Uh, I, I was at a conference, Miroslav Wolf was speaking at, and he said that he did his devotions for three months around the work of Nietzsche. So I, I think that's interesting that, that, that uh, he took that angle to think and, and pray and be devotional. So we look forward to the series. Thank you very Thanks. much. Um, um, for giving us your time for these next six weeks and at the moment I'll put the pressure on David and hand over uh, to David Livingston tonight nice. to talk with Darwin. Thank you. Uh, your quoting Miroslav Wolf reminds me that Merrill um, um, Westfall, who's a Christian philosopher um, in New York City, said that he took up the reading of Marx, Nietzsche and um, I think Foucault um, as a sort of penance for Lent um, <laughs> because he felt that by reading um, what he described as secular philosophers of original sin, which he thinks these figures are, he could get a real insight into um, not only secularity, but also original sin. Uh, let's hope we can get uh, something even approaching that as we run up to, to Easter. Um, so the topic tonight, then, um, is indeed Charles Darwin. Um, what I plan to do is to talk a little bit initially about, about Darwin himself and Darwin's theories, um, maybe stressing things that might not be quite so well known um, uh, about, about Charles Darwin. Um, but because of the resonance that Darwin continues to have in the 21st century, and because of the debates that go on, um, particularly amongst the new atheists um, over... Um, 
a Darwinian worldview, if I can call it that, um, I thought it would be worthwhile to spend a bit of time uh, departing immediately from Charles Darwin himself to look at the legacy of the whole Darwinian uh, event uh, right up to, our, to, the, uh, to the present day. So I guess the first half I'm planning, appropriately take the watch off now, the first half I'm planning more or less to focus on, on Darwin and then to look at his continuing legacy and um, some of the problems in what I'm going to call the culture wars, the science culture wars of the late uh, 20th and 21st century. Um, the uh, American distinguished historian and biologist Ernst Meyer once had this to say, Darwinism caused a greater upheaval in man's thinking than any other scientific advance since the rebirth of science in the Renaissance. And that's actually quite a big statement. Um, he's saying that really since the 17th century, the birth of modern science, which we associate with people like Newton, Copernicus, Galileo and the like, since that rebirth of science, um, the greatest upheaval in human thinking has come from the pen of, of Charles Darwin. I, th I think there's something to be said for that. I think there's some, uh, some truth in that. Um, and so we're dealing tonight with a, a thinker who has had an enormous impact, enormous impact right through from the, from the sciences into culture and now right into the human mind itself such that there are those who think that every aspect of our life and culture can be understood in the language of Darwinian biology. So, so, so he's significant. Um, the contemporary, uh, I suppose, new atheist, I might say, Dan Dennett, had this to say, quite an observation. If I were to give an award for the single best idea anyone ever had, has ever had, I'd give it to Darwin. Ahead of Newton and Einstein and everybody else. I guess that includes you, Steve, right? So we're dealing here with what Dan Dennett thinks is the best idea that anybody ever had. Whether that's true or not, I don't know, but I'll leave it for, for you to judge. So let me introduce Charles Darwin. Two images here. One is of the young Darwin. This is a portrait that's in the, I think it's the Royal College of Surgeons. And the other, of course, is a cartoon from the 19th century where Darwin is portrayed, I think, with a sort of, sort of sneer, I think, um, supercilious, um, looking on, on a sort of humanity, I think, that um, you get the feeling he's despising. I don't think this is a, a true image of, of, of Darwin at all. Uh, but at any rate... Um, Darwin grew up in a pretty well-to-do home, uh, having been born in 1809 um, in the south of England. And uh, uh, he uh, was really, to encourage many of you, pretty hopeless as a student at school. Um, he failed nearly all his examinations. When he left school, um, his headmaster wrote that he had really only got one or two accomplishments of which the major one was collecting beetles and shooting rats. Now, as a consequence, his father thought, what are we going to do with the young Charles? Why not have him follow in his father's footsteps so that he might become a medical doctor? So Darwin is sent off in those days to the University of Edinburgh now in the 1820s to study medicine. Now, it's interesting to think about Edinburgh in the 1820s and 30s. It probably has the best medical school in the world um, at that point in time. And it was pretty different from the way in which medical education took place in other places because, because Darwin, when he's in 
when he's in Edinburgh, has an opportunity to interact with the leading research ideas that are being introduced into, the, into Britain from Paris, and particularly from the Paris materialists. They were already talking about a certain set of evolutionary theories, and whilst Darwin is a member of a student society called the Plinian Society, he comes across a range of early evolutionary ideas, and guess what? They are associated in France with materialism and atheism and political revolution. He's nervous about them. He thinks that evolutionary ideas are disruptive, and therefore he's very tentative about them at this early stage in his, in his career. Medical education in an era before anesthetics was not a pleasant thing. Where's John? Maybe it's a pleasant thing now. I, I don't know, but it wasn't. It wasn't pleasant then. And so when Darwin witnesses the amputation of the leg of a young girl of about the age of 11, where the leg is hacked off, of course, and plunged into boiling tar to cauterize it, it completely turns him. He's a very tender-hearted man. He's, he's got a great sympathy with all creatures who are suffering. He's a great sympathy with nature. And the consequence of that is that he turns his back on um, a medical education and returns home, home to his, uh, to his father's house. So his father thinks, if we're not going to make a medical doctor out of the young Charles, what are we going to do with him? Flashlight goes on, great answer, make him an Anglican clergyman. So they send him off, this time, to the University of Cambridge to study for the ministry. And guess what? Again, he's a pretty hopeless student. Because um, uh, training for the ministry includes, includes a lot of really, really practical classes like ancient Hebrew, ancient Greek, you know the sorts of things that you use in pastoral care all the time. And Charles Darwin just was hopeless at classical languages. Nonetheless, he managed to, very fortunately, get his way through his examinations, uh, scrapes through, returns home, and he's thinking now that the rest of his life will be spent in a quiet parsonage somewhere in rural England where he'll be able to continue indulging his passion for collecting beetles and maybe shooting rats as well. But by the end of his life, Darwin has published a huge number of, I think, massively significant works. You and I probably heard of about, ooh, one of these. Uh, is that working? The origin species there on the far side, I don't know, maybe my battery's going down, but just over there. Maybe we've heard of the descent of man, but, but what about um, his work on earthworms? What about his work on, on uh, uh, fertilizing of plants? What about his work on vegetable mold and things of that sort? He was an industrious natural historian, and these works reshaped natural history from that day right up to the present. So this is the figure we're dealing with, a figure who begins in a very, very inauspicious sort of way, but writes works that actually transform, transform the world, and we'll get in a minute or two to what those might actually look like. But we've left him, haven't we, in about 1831, now that he's back from Cambridge, and anticipating um, a life where he will be um, a parson naturalist. 
Now, whilst his time in, uh, in Cambridge did not make him into a great student of theology, several things happened there that turned out to be of enormous significance. The first one was, I think, that he encountered a work by a man called William Paley entitled Natural Theology. Paley's Natural Theology was really a theological book, but it was a science book at the same time, because what it was really doing was spelling out in great detail how Paley believed God had shaped or adapted um, every organism in the world to its own environment, and therefore that the world bore the stamp in detail of the Creator's design and of the Creator's handiwork. For William Paley, studying animals was, in a sense, to study the mind of God, because he believed that picking out those adaptations that so perfectly fitted organisms to their environment, uh, that that was actually elucidating the plan of the Creator and the way in which God's purpose and design was stamped upon the universe. That profoundly influenced the way Darwin thought about nature. He was forever looking at and looking out for adaptations. It's just that he progressively began to think, could those adaptations be brought about by natural means rather than by divine creation? But the second thing that happened, I think, when he was in Cambridge that turns out to have been enormous significance was that he met two professors in the University of Cambridge, both Anglican clergymen. Now, of course, you had to be an Anglican clergyman. You needed to be ordained to teach in Cambridge. You needed to sign the 39 articles um, in the 1820s and 30s um, at the University of Cambridge. Two of these, of course, turned out to be the leading scientists of their day. One was Henslow, who was really Britain's leading botanist at the time, and the other was Sedgwick. That was Britain's leading geologist. And Darwin formed very close friendships with these two senior professors. They were both profound Christian believers. They took Darwin under their wing. And so when Darwin returned in 1831, not sure about what he was going to do for the rest of his life, save for heading to being a parson naturalist, a remarkable thing happened. He received a letter from the blue, from the Admiralty. The Admiralty requesting him or asking would he be interested in going on a five-year round-the-world voyage, accompanying um, a, a survey ship that was engaged in doing uh, 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 oceanographic and other aspects of marine science. It was really because Henslow had recommended him for this job that the, that the request came. Well, now, uh, we live in an era of uh, parents having to pay for student fees, don't we? And uh, so, you know, our kids have benefited from the Livingstone uh, Memorial Scholarship Fund, and I'm sure some of yours have as well. But who was going to pay for Charles to take five years out and go around the world? His father didn't think it was a good idea at all. But he had a rich uncle, a rich uncle called Josiah Wedgwood of famous Wedgwood pottery. Uncle Josh then intervened, talked to Darwin's father, And the consequence was that Darwin headed off on this five-year, round-the-world voyage in this tiny sloop where there was almost no room at all. But he spent five years on a voyage that must have been transforming for an Englishman who'd scarcely seen anything of the world. What an opportunity it provided, except for this. He was a hopeless sailor. 
Charles Darwin was seasick almost every day of the voyage. In fact, somebody wrote a lovely article on this with the title, I could have wretched all night, and believe you me, he mostly did. He was delighted when they touched land, and he spent as much time off the ship as he could conceivably do, and ended up, of course, on this voyage, beginning in Southampton, heading out into the South, South Atlantic, first of all. I'm going to pause for a minute at a couple of crucial points in this voyage, particularly the battery is definitely getting low, particularly here at Terra del Fuego, off the southern tip of South America, not at the Galapagos Islands. If any of you know about Darwin, you may want to ask about the Galapagos Islands. I think they're mostly quite insignificant, at least compared to the traditional story that we've heard. Then pack through, I think, to particularly some time in Australia, Cape of Good Hope, five years later, back to back to England. Now, the captain of this vessel was this man, Robert Fitzroy. Robert Fitzroy is, of course, not only famous because we recognize the name and you all woke up when I said Fitzroy, uh, but also because we owe to Fitzroy's vision. If you can't sleep too well at night, you hear the shipping forecast. And you hear the shipping forecast coming in from Finisterre, Mallon Head, Dogger, Bank, and so on. This was all Captain Robert Fitzroy's idea. And it was his idea because he, he believed that too many ships were being lost at sea and therefore a kind of early warning weather system uh, where uh, records would be taken and passed on would be very valuable for marine uh, and, and navigational safety. Now it turns out, in fact, that um, Robert Fitzroy had already been to the South Pacific before. Several years earlier, he had journeyed to Terra del Fuego. And it turns out that he picked up a piece of cargo there. And that piece of cargo was called Jemmy Button. Jemmy Button was a native Terra del Fuegian. And he got his name probably from this practice that when they got him on board, the captain probably pulled a button off his jump jacket and threw it to the native people and bought him for a button. And so he was called Jemmy Button. They also brought back a, a woman, uh, and she was called Fuegia Basket, probably paid a basket for her. There was a third one called... York Minster, and I, but I don't think that they paid York Minster for him, but they gave him York Minster as a name anyway. Now, why were these, actually there were four of them, three or four native Fuegians picked up by Captain Robert Fitzroy? This. Fitzroy was on an experiment, and it was a missionary experiment. It was a Christian experiment, and that experiment was this. It was to bring these native peoples, he would have called them savages, bring them back to Britain and Christianize them and then return them as missionaries to Terra del Fuego. Guess what? With Darwin on the Beagle voyage, so is Jemmy Button. Jemmy is being returned on this voyage to the South Pacific. And Darwin strikes up quite a friendship with the young man. In fact, the civilizing that has gone on uh, on, a, on account of, of, of Fitzroy's uh, philanthropy and his um, Christian largesse has been remarkable. Jimmy Button has now become an English gentleman. 
uh, would wear top hats, would wear uh, long uh, uh, gloves and, and things of this sort. In fact, they became so famous that they were entertained um, at the royal household. They became quite, 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 uh, quite well known as celebrities in Victorian culture in the 1820s. Now they're on their way back. They drop Jimmy Button off with another local missionary and they go off to do some surveying between the coast of Terra del Fuego and South America, charting that important, important shipping lane to try to map it for the first time. Within a very short space of time, however, this had happened. Jemmy Button de-evolved. He evolved back into being a savage. Within a very short time, he adapted to his old ways, reabsorbed with his people, and had no desire to return to Britain at all. And this shocked, this shocked Captain Robert Fitzroy because it struck him, that Captain Robert Fitzroy, that civilization was literally only skin deep, that Christianization might very, very easily be overturned and seemed to be overturned in the case of Jimmy Button, and Darwin noticed this because he felt that they were the most barbarous and savage peoples that he, Darwin, had ever met. And when he saw Jimmy Button reverting so quickly to his old Fuegian ways, it struck him, how deep really is civilization? How much do societies just adapt to the environments that they're in? And so as, as, as the beagle pulled away for the, la, from, for the last time from the shores of Terra del Fuego, and, and as Darwin looked up to the overhanging rocks and saw these savages throwing boulders and stones and everything they could down at the vessel as it navigates its way in the narrow channel, he thought to himself, are they closer to Victorians than they are to animals? Are these savages closer to us than they are to the highest non-human animals, he began to wonder. From that date, in 1831-32, could there be some close link between humanity and the pre-human world? He didn't publish on this for over 40 years. The origin of species when it came out in 1859 has nothing about humans in it at all. But human evolution was at the back of his mind for such a long period of time. But he discovered something else profoundly important when he was on these, this voyage, and it's this. Up close, he saw slavery for the first time. And he witnessed the horrors of people being enslaved and being terribly abused. Now, of course, Darwin himself came from an abolitionist family. I mentioned Josiah Wedgwood, his uncle here is a slavery medallion that was produced by Josiah Wedgwood urging for abolition. And so some recent work suggests that this is what was animating Charles Darwin for much of his life in this, in this, this book by Adrian Desmond and James Moore arguing that Darwin had a sacred cause, a sacred cause to wipe out slavery. And he felt that by suggesting that every human race was descended from the same source, from the same stock, from the same origin that netted all humanity together in a common brotherhood. And if in a common brotherhood, then slavery should be outlawed. 
Now, it may be that Desmond and Moore prosecute this case with a little more fervor, maybe, than the evidence warrants. I'm not sure. But it's absolutely the case that Darwin was a passionate abolitionist. And for that reason, he supported the South American missionary societies with funding for almost the rest of his life. So his philanthropy spills out into his support of missions, missionaries who are doing their best to wipe out wipe out slavery. So that's a brief introduction to the early Charles Darwin. Let me just very, very quickly say something about Darwin's theories. And I can be quick about this because most of you know this. Of course, the major book that he published was in 1859, The Origin of Species. The full title was On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favored Races in the struggle for life. I, I put on the right-hand side there the famous diagram that, he, that he, he, he constructed, the tree of life. The first time that anyone had conceived of the entire history of all living things as a, in a tree-like structure from a common, a common source. Now, I suspect that everybody here has heard of the origin of species. Hands up anybody who's read it. Well, Philip, I knew you'd read it, so would you like to come and tell us what? <laughs> I knew you read it because he borrowed my copy, right? What's the origin of species about? Well, actually, believe it or not, a huge amount of the origin of species is, you ready? Is about pigeons. About pigeons? Yes, about pigeons. Here are a few pigeons. And what's remarkable about pigeons, and Darwin, can I say, joined up a whole range of pigeon breeding societies and corresponded with pigeon fanciers all across England, with, uh, sustaining a huge correspondence over many, many years. But, but here's the thing. If you look at the pigeons at the bottom here, I think, I think, I think one on the, the bottom right is a fantail. I think the other one is a, in the middle is a jacobin. I'm not sure what the other one is. But they're all descended from the common rock pigeon at the top. Now, if you were to look at the rock pigeon, and you were also to look at, say, that fantail, it wouldn't immediately strike you that they were the same, never mind variety, you wouldn't even think they were the same species at all. So I plucked a couple off the internet this afternoon, and there are the two of them. Would you think they're even the same creature? This was a huge clue to Darwin as, how, as to how evolution happened. How do we get these fancy varieties? Well, this way. Pigeon breeders have got the seeing eye. They can see in a chick a very small variation that you or I would have real difficulty in picking out, but a clever breeder can see a slight variation and when that breeder breeds for that particular trait in a very small number of generations, you can get this enormous transformation with a fantail such that you would think it was a completely different bird altogether. And this was an insight to Charles Darwin. The way the breeder selects the mates, could nature select organisms adapted to nature? That's really the metaphor of natural selection. Just as the breeder selects the mates, so nature can select those that are better adapted 
to the environment. This gave Darwin the engine power of his idea, evolution by natural selection. In doing so, he didn't have to have recourse to the creator creating every variety. Nature could do that in a normal, ordinary, causal, plain, humdrum sort of natural way without requiring divine intervention to bring all about all those stunning adaptations that you and I can see in every organic piece of life. But of course Darwin didn't want to rest there. And so, 1871, he brings out the descent of man. And now he subjects the human to exactly the same kind of understanding of natural law to suggest, could we too, could we too be the products of natural forces and therefore be descended from less, uh, more inferior pre-human forms? His answer, of course, was, was yes. But even this wasn't far enough for him. He then pressed further to say, what about those distinctively almost, shall we say, spiritual or psychological or emotional aspects of the human, could those elements of us too be the product of pre-human life? And in this book, The Expression of the Emotions in Man and Animals, he argued, yes, indeed, you can see emotional expressions, whether it's in cats or dogs or wolves or monkeys or whatever. Could this be the beginning of the psychological roots of your and my behavior, those things perhaps even that we think of as, as sacred, this was Darwin's biggest challenge. Well, it seems to me that, that Darwin posed a number of, a number of, 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 of challenges uh, to the Christian church. His account seemed to conflict with the first chapter of Genesis, I don't think that was a particularly big, big issue. People were perfectly able to interpret the Genesis narrative in, in ways that did not meet or ha- have to be too anxious about, uh, about a long earth history. But what about a world that might have no purpose in it? What about a world that might have come about through just natural law? This was a source of major concern. And what about the human, that crown of creation? Um, What in a Victorian society was to be made of the thought that the most sophisticated of Victorian people were really descended from some version of of an ape or, or a monkey? Well, remarkably, there were a range of Christian responses to this. And I'm just going to quickly go through these. We can visit them late, later again if you want, because I want to get to, to the contemporary debates just for, for, for the second half of this talk. Let me just illustrate the variety of Christian responses that could happen when people encountered the origin of species. I'll take most of these from our own Presbyterian tradition, but one or two others might be interesting as well. Here is the greatest of the 19th century American uh, theologians, Charles Hodge. Hodge's last book came out in 1874. It was entitled, What is Darwinism? Now, this greatest of the American theologians had this to say. We have thus arrived at the answer to our question, what is Darwinism? Answer, it is atheism. Hodge was convinced that Darwinism was atheism not because it conflicted with the detailed reading of Genesis, but because it seemed to put forward an account that the world had come into being without any recourse 
to the divine activity of a grand architect. Now, James McCosh was actually a professor here in Belfast on his way between Scotland and the University of Princeton where he went to become the, uh, the president of what would become Princeton University. McCosh was actually here in Belfast uh, teaching at Queen's College during 1859. You all know what happened in 1859. Revival. McCosh emerged as the leading defender of the revival in 1859. Amidst critiques of um, the, re- the revival from a variety of sources, he defended this as a work of God. He also became the leading Christian defender of Darwin and of evolution in the world. He was both pro-revival and pro-evolution. Here's what he had to say. Religious philosophers might be more profitably employed in showing the religious aspects of the doctrine of development, that's the doctrine of evolution, and some would be grateful to any who would help them to keep their new faith in science. The great Benjamin B. Warfield is a well-known, was a well-known theologian in the latter part of the 19th century. He's the person who most ardently defended the doctrine that the Bible is without any error, the doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture. What did he have to say about, about Darwin's theory? Now, here's a person who uh, produces, I suppose, the most scholarly and detailed defense of the Bible as without error. Later in life, he reflects back on the days when he he came as a student to study theology for the first time. Those were the days when James McCosh had just arrived on the Princeton campus. This is what Warfield had to say. McCosh had no influence on me whatsoever. Why? Because I was already a Darwinian of the purest water. Now, you might think to yourself, how could it be a Darwinian of the purest water and yet a believer in the inerrancy of the Bible? Go figure. In 1915, Warfield wrote a very significant article entitled Calvin's Doctrine of the Creation. And in this, expounding John Calvin's understanding of the Genesis narrative, he insisted, now whether he's right or wrong, you need to ask Stephen Williams about this, but... He insisted that Calvin believed that the word creation was only used twice for two specific things in the Genesis narrative. The initial creation of everything out of nothing and the creation of the human soul. Everything else, he said, came about just by natural processes. Now, whether that's right or not, I I don't know, but it led him to think this, and I quote him, that Calvin's doctrine of the creation, he writes, is a very pure evolutionary scheme. It was requisite, he said, that the six days should be lengthened out into periods, six ages of the growth of the world. Had that been done, now here's Warfield's words, Calvin would have been a precursor of the modern evolutionary theorists. If you've got a problem, you better take him to the presbytery. Not everybody saw it this way. 
Josiah Porter, who was a professor um, here at, at um, Assemblies College same, at the same period of time, he could not see any of these positive things in Darwin at all. He talked about the evil tendencies of recent scientific theories and how they threatened to quench every virtuous thought. By contrast, the eminent Baptist theologian Augustus Hopkins Strong had this to say, the attraction of gravitation and the principle of evolution are only other names for Christ. What does he mean by that? God is working through Christ through natural processes. And therefore, natural laws are another way of talking about Christ in the world. Well, I think I promised you that I'd move on briefly at the end here to the contemporary culture wars. You can see what some of the threats have been. You can see the variety of Christian responses. And I want to talk about something where you're going to get my viewpoint a little bit more. Evolution is, of course, almost always in the headlines these days almost in the headlines, because it's become a tool in the hands of the new atheists. And indeed, I have to say, some aspects of the scientific establishment to use it as a stick to constantly beat religion. It seems to me that there's no awareness of the history that I've tried to outline tonight amongst people like uh, Richard Dawkins and, and um, Daniel Dennett and, and the like. But um, it seems to me that this is an important and um, significant contemporary issue and I want to say something a little bit about it. Let me introduce you to, to Michael Rice. Um, this is a picture from Michael Rice from 2008. Um, it, made the, it made the front page of the Times, Sunday Times. The Royal Society's Michael Rice resigns over a creationism raw. Uh, uh, Michael Rice was the education um, uh, secretary or director for the Royal Society, the most uh, eminent uh, scientific society, arguably in the world, but certainly in Britain. And in some discussion about science, he had something to say, not supporting traditional creationism or anything like that at all, but some comments to make about the relationship between science and religion. Frankly, I don't remember what they were, and frankly, it's not important. What is important is that when this, his comments were widely broadcast the response that came to Michael Rice from certain leading figures in the scientific establishment. Consider Sir Richard Roberts, a Nobel Prize winner, I have to say. He had this to say. We gather that Professor Rice is a clergyman. You awake here, Steve? Which in itself is very worrisome. <laughs> Who on earth thought he'd be an appropriate director of education? who could be expected to answer questions about the differences between science and religion in a scientific, reasoned way. This was only one of a set of letters that the president of the Royal Society received from Nobel laureates, wanting Rice pushed out of his position. In, in fact, he, he, he did resign, forced to resign, I think. Sir Harry Croto, I think Tom said he, he knew him when he, when he was in Britain, He's also Nobel laureate. What about this? There's no way that an ordained minister for whom unverified dogma must represent a major, if not the major, pillar in their lives can present free-thinking, doubt-based scientific philosophy honestly or disinterestedly. Now, what struck me as particularly interesting about, about this are the assumptions 
that just because he has religious faith, you can't rely on him to answer anything that's even remotely rational. Now, I knew I was onto something significant here when I read what Richard Dawkins had to say. Because for once, I found myself in complete agreement with Dawkins. Richard Dawkins had this, I think it maybe appeared on his, uh, on his website, on the Michael Rice affair. Unfortunately for Rice, as a would-be spokesman for the Royal Society, Rice is also an ordained minister. Now notice this, to call for his resignation on those grounds, as several Nobel Prize-winning fellows are now doing, comes a little too close to a witch hunt for my squeamish taste. Now, that's a remarkable admission on the part of Richard Dawkins, but it certainly shows you the extent to which anti-religious prejudice is occupying at least certain aspects of public discussions about, about, about science. Well, we're in the middle of a culture war, it seems to me, and what I want to do now is to say something about why I think this is, some aspects of this really turn out to be a war that Christians need to be thinking seriously about. I'm going to call this Darwinian imperialism, and what I'm after now for the next little while is to argue with you that, I mean, I'm, I'm perfectly convinced of the, the truth of evolution uh, myself and of natural selection as a as a key mechanism in, in bringing the world to the position where we now find ourselves. But I'm worried about what I'm calling Darwinian imperialism. And I mean by that the pushing of Darwin's theory into every aspect of life. I want to illustrate this, and then I want to illustrate some criticisms, and then I'm done. Now, I think perhaps the, the most important Darwinian imperialist in the modern world is the Tufts philosopher Daniel Dennett. Now, Dennett is a first-class philosopher, no question doubt about that, but he's fastened upon Darwin's dangerous idea and thinks that this is the idea. Remember, I quoted him at the beginning. This is the idea that's going to transform and should transform the world. Now, in this book, uh, it's an important, difficult book, Darwin's dangerous idea is this to say, I think. He talks about Darwin's universal acid. Darwin's theory is something, he says, that really can explain everything, and it erodes, it erodes its way down through absolutely everything. It eats through just about every traditional concept and leaves in its wake a revolutionized worldview. This is Darwinism about everything. Now, you might be surprised at the extent to which Darwin's theory is called upon to explain everything from the color of your eyes to why you love your children, to why you like music, to almost every aspect of, of life. I'm going to give you three or four, four quotations here to show you the extent to which people think that everything about us may be explicable in Darwinian vocabulary. I'm drawing these particularly from the, the arena known as evolutionary psychology, and I'm pretty skeptical about it. So, Darwin's universal acid... Let's have a look at some of the claims. Now, this is a sort of uh, skit on them, I think, but a lot of truth in it. These are all quotations. We don't approve of eating grandmother because having her around to babysit was useful in the hunter-gatherer ecology. So if we don't have grandmother for supper, it's really because she was useful for looking after your kids, a Darwinian account of why, Francis, we're heading into grandmotherhood. At least they don't eat grandfathers. 
We like music because singing together strengthened the bonds between the hunters and the gatherers. Now, when you're sitting enjoying Bach, or you're sitting enjoying, I, I don't know, the, the, the beauties of Beethoven, we only have that because when we sang together as hunters and gatherers, we felt really cozy. We talk by making noises and not by waving our hands. That's because hunter-gatherers lived in the savanna and would have had trouble seeing one another in the tall grass. <laughs> now, these seem humorous, but they're actually taken from leading evolutionary psychology textbooks. And my concern about this is the pressure, the, 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 the assumption that somehow there must be a Darwinian explanation for everything. There is nothing that escapes the Darwinian empire. And it's that impulse to move into every aspect of our lives that I think is something we've got to treat with very considerable concern. Let me mention two elements of this. The first one I'm calling evolutionary reductionism. That's the, that's the notion that everything about us can be reduced to natural selection. Everything about us, everything we have, can be explained in the language of evolutionary development. I think Richard Dawkins is a good example of this. Life is just bites and bites and bites of digital information. We, and that means all living things, are survival machines programmed to propagate the digital database that did the programming. You and I are nothing but bits of data. Now, I'm not saying that we're not bits of data. What I'm saying is that we're not just bits of data. But Richard Dawkins seems to think we are. This leads him to this interesting definition. A monkey is a machine that preserves genes up a, up a tree. A fish is a, a is a machine that preserves genes in the water. I want to put it to you that with that definition, we miss something about monkeys. And we miss something crucial about fish if we think of them as just these kind of gene-preserving mechanisms. Now, you might think this is just the, this reductionist impulse is... Um, just the proclivity of one or two extremists, extreme high Darwinians or ultra-Darwinians of the Dawkins type. I don't think so. I think this notion that we reduce everything about us to our genetic constitution is going to make a big difference in the world that we live in. And I think we've got to do something about it. At the reading group here in Fitzroy, I think it was a year or two ago, we read this article. Maybe, did we read this article? We talked about reading this article. The Biological Basis of Behavior and the Criminal Justice System. Let me just pick a couple of bits out of this. This is from the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Um, a, a figure, um, Kashmo Moore, who recently was elected to the American Academy of Sciences, and he wrote this article. Let me just take a few of the quotations from it. The reality is, because we're nothing but our genes, not only do we have no more free will than a fly or a bacterium, in actuality we've no more free will than a bowl of sugar. The laws of nature are uniform throughout, and these laws don't accommodate the concept of free will. That's the first step in this. You have no free will. Now, if you have no free will, you don't have to think a lot about the implications that this might have on the criminal justice system. Consider this. Progress in understanding the chemical basis of behavior will make it increasingly untenable to retain a belief in the concept of free will. To retain any degree of reality, the criminal justice system will need to adjust accordingly.
accordingly. You're not going to be guilty for anything anymore. No such thing as guilt or innocence. Everything about you is determined by your genes. There's no free will. And if there's no free will, then there's no sense of responsibility or culpability. And of course, there could be no concept of punishment. What you do end up with, though, is a society in which people can be locked away, not because they've done something wrong, but just to keep them away from the rest of us. If this doesn't look like a tyrannical regime, I'm not really sure what does. But this is coming from a reductionist concept that has its roots in a form of, a form of Darwinian imperialism. Let me just mention the other area I think that this is really important in is, is our ethics. Increasingly, there are a number of evolutionary biologists who are arguing that evolution should be a guide to our moral behavior. I have to say Richard Dawkins is not one. I mean, I did put this question directly to him, and he said, no, this was not his view. But it's the view of many others. Michael Ruth, for example, and I know Michael quite well, he's this to say, morality is no such thing. It's a collective illusion foisted upon us by our genes. You think that things are right and wrong. That's only a survival strategy. In fact, there's no such thing as ethics at all. Or, or, or you might look at uh, evolution as a guide to ethics in the Oxford Companion to Philosophy. We value things and persons in accordance with their capacities to sustain and maintain survival in evolutionary terms. The only thing that's good is something that will lead to the survival of the species. That's the only definition of good, a survival thing that might be, that might be on offer. Well, I'm coming near, near the end now, and I just have very quickly a couple of points. I want to say something about two types of critics of this advanced form of, of um, Darwinian imperialism so that we can get a sense then in response to these people of the kind of battle that I think that we may have on our hands. Now, Al Planting, I think, Alvin Planting is arguably the world's finest Christian philosopher. And he's uh, written a very interesting set of works on the theory of evolution. A number of these have come together with a set of commentators in this book entitled Naturalism Defeated. Now, I'm not going to get into the philosophy of this because uh, all of these three, th three thinkers I'm going to talk about here are pretty technical. We can pick up the questions if you want afterwards. I just want to give you a general gist of what they're saying. So you're have to, going to have to concentrate here for a minute to just get a handle on what, what's going on. Plantinga has developed what he calls E-A-A-N. E-A-A-N is an evolutionary argument against naturalism. I call this myself why a Darwinian has to be a theist. Now it goes something like this. If Darwinism is true, everything about us is selected because it gives us reproductive advantage. That's fundamentally what Darwin's theory is, a theory of relative reproductive success. That means that any beliefs that you have or thoughts that you have are only selected, not because those beliefs are true or false, but because they lead to behavior that increases your chance of survival. Natural selection can pick out behavior, but it can't pick out what goes on in the head. Your beliefs could be almost entirely false, 
And that, and yet, as one philosopher puts it, you could get your body parts in the right place in order to survive and reproduce. Now, Plantinga says, if that's true, natural selection can't pick out thought. How can we be sure that our thoughts are going to be true or false at all? And if that's the case, how could we be true that the theory of evolution is... How could we be sure the theory of evolution is true on Darwinian principles? He thinks you can't. He thinks that there's a self-contradiction and that the only way that you could be a coherent evolutionist and believe that we can find out things about the world is to be an evolutionist and a theist. This is a subtle argument. It's been generated a lot of debate. It's been dismissed, of course, as we'll see in a minute, by by critics. But this book that I'm showing you, um, Naturalism Defeated, has serious philosophers looking at this and finding the argument not to be silly at all, but to have a lot of power in it. But it's been dismissed. The interesting thing is that this is not only a view that's put forward by Christians, but also by secular thinkers. And I want to mention just two and then see how the public have treated them. Thomas Nagel is New York outstanding philosopher. He's deeply troubled by the, the notion that everything about us can be reduced simply to neurobiology. And so he brought out this book called Mind and Cosmos. That was a very daring subtitle. Can you read it? Why the materialist neo-Darwinian conception of nature is almost certainly false. You want to read the reviews. I'll let you see one or two of these in a minute. They think he's gone off the deep end. But here's, here's what animates Thomas Nagel. And it's this. Consciousness is a mysterious kind of thing. And even if you could describe in the language of neurobiology everything that explains consciousness, it still wouldn't get you to the experience of consciousness. The experience of it goes beyond the mere neurophysiology. And he puts it this way. It's a lengthy quote. Read it slowly. The physical sciences can describe organisms like ourselves as part of the objective spatio-temporal order, our structure and behavior in space and time. But they cannot describe the subjective experience of such organisms or how the world appears to their different uh, particular points of view. There can be a purely physical description of the neurobiological, psychological, physiological processes that give rise to an experience but also of the physical behavior that is typically associated with it. But such a description, however complete, will leave out the subjective essence of the experience, how it is from the point of view of its subject, without it which it would not be a conscious experience at all. Now, Nagel is very definitely anti-Christian. He does not see the world in a religious way. But he thinks that our conception of matter is far too material, that there's not enough about it that allows for the possibility of something that would become consciousness in the very nature of matter itself. He doesn't want to go towards the theistic solution to this problem, but he's very unhappy about a purely materialist conception of the nature of, of matter. And then I think the greatest philosopher of them all, Jerry Fodor. Fodor brought out a book a couple of years ago with a daring title, what Darwin got wrong. 
Now, now, Photo describes himself as a, quote, no-holds-barred, card-carrying, dyed-in-the-wool atheist. Looks pretty clear. I'm not going to bother now with too much of the details about the theory that he's putting forward or the details of it, but it goes something like this. Familiar claims to the contrary. Darwin didn't manage to get mental causes out of his account of evolution. He just hid them in the unexamined analogy between selection by breeding and natural selection. I'm not going into the details of his argument, but he's thinking that natural selection can't do the job that's been required of it. How have these, how have these people been, been received? And here I get to an end. The Darwinian empire strikes back. <laughs> Astonishing. When this book came out, Personally, I think it's a very persuasive argument. Uh, There are flaws in it, to be sure, but to me, it's an argument really worth taking seriously. Here's what the critics had to say. The two authors were described as two critics without a clue. What's that? Sterile and wrong-headed. Willfully ignorant. Simply silly. Dangerous picked up by the fundamentalist enemies of science. And also, believe it or not, though he's a card-carrying, dyed-in-the-wool atheist, some describe him as a creationist. Why? There's so much at stake in the Darwin business now that anybody who criticizes any element of it is going to be considered a fundamentalist, obscurantist creationist. The Guardian every year has this column by a man called Mark Vernon, the most despised science book of the year, the the most despised book of the year he runs, that's still worth reading. Note the figures who've got this. One, it went to Jerry Fodor in 2010. The next year, it went to Thomas Nagel for his book, Mind and Nature. Notice what one person wrote about Nagel. Nagel has gone the way of Alvin Plantinga which is like being compared to Nick Clegg. (laughs) Simon Blackburn, he says, reviewing Fodor's book or Nagel's book in the New Statesman insisted that if there were a philosophical Vatican, this book would be a good candidate for going on the index. And then it's the next sentence that I think is most telling. That was written tongue-in-cheek. But it's a purity argument, no less. As Mary Douglas pointed out, secular societies still draw symbolic boundaries to keep the permissible in and the threatening stuff out. Those who cross them risk expulsion. Fodor, Nagel, Plantinga have been lambasted in the press, mostly without their arguments being seriously looked at just because they challenge the high Darwinian orthodoxy that I think reigns in certain quarters. Well, I thought it would be quite good if I were to end now with three quotations from what I believe are three agnostics. Um, Maybe three atheists, not sure. But comments to show that there are secular thinkers who are as concerned about the dismissal of religion by many of the folks that I've talked about, at least, as, at least as concerned as we are, and in some cases, maybe more concerned than we in the church are, and certainly should be. Terry Eagleton. Imagine someone holding forth on biology 
His only knowledge of the subject is the book of British birds, and you have a rough idea of what it feels like to read Richard Dawkins on theology. <laughs> Pretty good, Terry. H. Alan Orr. The most disappointing feature is Dawkins's failure to engage religious thought in any serious way. This reflects Dawkins' cavalier attitude about the quality of religious thinking. You'll find no serious examination of Christian or Jewish theology in the book, no attempt to follow philosophical debates about the nature of religious propositions, no effort to appreciate the complex history of the interaction between the church and science, and no attempt to understand even the simplest of religious acts. H. Alan Orr, I think, has no religious acts to grind, and yet it seems to me that he's absolutely right here, that there's a knee-jerk dismissal of any critique, not least any critique, that comes from a religious perspective. And finally... I criticized my old friend Michael Roos earlier on. I'm going to say something good about Michael now, and he's right about this. The paradox is, he's an atheist as well, that Richard Dawkins should be more modest. He stresses that we are the product of Darwinian evolution, and hence there's no good reason to think that we have the power to penetrate into the mysteries of the universe. In a way, the Darwinian is back-to-back with St. Paul. We peer through a glass darkly. Now, when we're having these kind of criticisms from serious thinking atheists, it strikes me that we really have a culture war and one that the church really needs to get involved with. That's all I've got to say.